0: And for the rest of us, if you can find your Bible and open it up to Exodus 12. If you don't have a Bible, you may be able to find one somewhere in the seat back in the row in front of you. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, you should find Exodus 12 on page 48. Exodus 12, 1 through 12. This fall, we've been working our way through the Old Testament. We've been hitting selected highlights. And we've been seeing how God began working with his creation and the human race to, to redeem them and to bless them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then through their descendants, the Israelites, and Moses, their leader. Last week we, see, we saw how God heard the cries of his chosen people in slavery in Egypt. God saw their affliction and was concerned about them. God remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them into a great people, to bless them and to make them a blessing, to give them a land of their own. And now God had come down to act. God called Moses to be his representative, to demand that the Egyptian pharaoh release God's people from bondage and oppression. And when... Pharaoh stubbornly refused, God then sent one plague and then another on Egypt, slowly turning the heat up on Pharaoh, plague by plague. This was a battle. It was a showdown between God and Pharaoh. But it was more than that. It was also a battle between the Lord and the gods of Egypt. You see, it's hard for for us to imagine what it was like to be a poor and enslaved Israelite under the control of the most powerful empire in the world Egypt had its untouchable unpower, uh, un or all-powerful Pharaoh um, who by the way was considered a god himself then there were all of Pharaoh's regal officials and all their their pomp there was Egypt's uh, mighty dominant military There were its awe-inspiring buildings and monuments and temples, some of which are still standing today. Egypt had its own mythology and its lore, which built it up to be even bigger than life, if that was possible. And Egypt had its many gods, all of whom were given credit for Egypt's wealth and its prosperity and its mighty power. And all of this just reinforced to these poor Jewish slaves that they were nobodies, that resistance was futile, that they were God forsaken and helpless. Pharaoh and all the other gods of Egypt, it seemed, were all powerful. And when even the heavens are against you, there's just no doing anything about it. And so when this has been your mentality for generation after generation, it's going to take something big and and significant to get you to see yourself and your circumstances in a different way. And that, in part, is the reason for the shock and awe campaign that the Lord wages against the Pharaoh and against the gods of Egypt. God shows plague after plague that the Israelite God is far greater than the so-called gods of Egypt. That the Lord can roam uncontested through the domains of the Egyptian gods, turning the river gods Nile to blood, the sun gods daylight to darkness, the cattle gods livestock to disease and ruin. It's as if a group of bullies may have held sway on the playground for years, but now a bigger, tougher kid has come to school, sent all the bull- sending all the bullies running for cover. The gods were in retreat. They were powerless to stand before the, the power of Moses' great God. And yet, all this time, plague after plague, the Pharaoh remained stubbornly. God resistance. And so the Lord decided to level one final, ultimate stroke, which would finally change this despot's hard heart and once and for all show the impotence of the gods of Egypt. The Lord would put to death every firstborn in Egypt. Then Pharaoh would finally humble himself and relent of his brutal tyranny and let God's people go. Is this an intense story or what? I mean, the biblical story can be a little slow at points. You know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are wandering around following their sheep around the desert, and and it can get a little slow, but it's not slow anymore now that we're into Exodus. I mean, now God brings out all the special effects, all the big guns. It's showdown time. And we're just about to reach the grand finale when God once and for all defeats Pharaoh and, and sets his people free. And right here at the big climax in chapter twelve, the story suddenly stops to talk about a new calendar and, and which day starts the new first month and, and how to slay and cook a lamb and and which lamb you should pick and how much each person should eat and what they should eat it with and, and what to do with the leftovers and how to cook your bread, and what you should wear to the meal. Why? (laughs) Why now? Why talk about all this nitpicky domestic stuff at a time like this? I I mean, it's like you're watching Thanksgiving football, and it's a great game, it's a a close game, and time is ticking down in the last quarter, your team is in the game, and and it's past the two-minute warning, and, and your team is driving down the field, they're behind by four, but, but they're, they're moving down the field, they're down to the five yard line with only a few seconds left on the clock, they have one more shot at getting a touchdown to win the game, and then right then, the station pauses the game for a Betty Crocker special on 10 tips for cooking a better turkey. Do you see what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, why pause the action now, of all times, to tell us this stuff about details and traditions? Well, to answer that question, let me read you uh, a story told by Vodi Bakham. Bakham's an African-American pastor and professor, and he's well known for his writing and his teaching on what parents and churches can do to increase the chances that their children will grow up to share their faith, and there's a hint. Now, Bakham's writing is a, a Baptist in the South, so don't get tripped up on some of the details of his Christian culture if it's different from yours. Try to hear the main point of what he's saying in this story. Not long ago, he writes, I sat down with a grieving father. He wasn't grieving because his child had died, but over something potentially far worse. His son, Thomas, had grown up in church. He was a good kid. He was a fixture in the youth group. He dated a girl from the church. He went to Disciple Now weekends, youth camp and YEC, that's a Baptist youth outreach. He even participated in a mission trip his sophomore year in high school. However, when he went off to college, things changed. His parents had heard of the danger of secular schools, so they guided him toward a Christian university. He was an outstanding athlete and had won a baseball scholarship. Thomas' story was not just typical, it was exceptional. He had done all the things Christian parents desire for their children, good grades, great friends, active in church, popular, off to college on an athletic scholarship. So why was his father grieving? As it turns out, there was a darker side to Thomas's life. Things were lurking beneath the surface that his mom, dad, youth pastor, and Sunday school teacher never saw. Once he was away at All-American Christian University, this darker side began to surface. First, Thomas stopped attending church. He occasionally attended the large weekly Bible study on campus or the area-wide college service hosted by a large church in town, but he was not plugged in to a local body of believers. Moreover, there was no sense of personal holiness, no pursuit of Christian disciplines. Next, Thomas began to struggle a bit in class. He'd always been an A-B student, but now he was struggling just to pass his midterms in some of his classes. Upon closer examination of his academic struggles, they found that Thomas was staying out late and drinking heavily and often missed classes. Finally, Thomas was suspended from his baseball team when a random drug test revealed that he had taken anabolic steroids. The father was so distraught that he did not allow Thomas to return for his second year. He opted instead to place him in a local community college until this young man could get his head on straight. Upon hearing Thomas's story, I tried to console this grieving, grieving father as best I could. He cried for a while and then he asked me a question that I don't think he wanted answered. Where could I have gone wrong, he asked as he shook his head in disgust. Over the next several days, he and I unpacked the situation and dealt with some very tough issues. I'm not suggesting this case is cut and dry, but we did find some very familiar patterns. First, Thomas's lack of commitment in spiritual matters was not as strange as it seemed. As I talked with his father, I learned that Thomas was more than just a naturally gifted ball player. This kid had been playing baseball since he was sick six, and started taking private instruction at nine. He'd been part of a traveling squad at age 12 and was an all-star at every level. This man and his wife had gone to great lengths to see to it that their son became the best baseball player he could be. This also meant that during the summer and fall, their church attendance was sporadic at best. Like many parents, they found themselves traveling to tournament after tournament and praying for the opportunity to be out on Sunday, since this meant that they were playing for a title somewhere. What they didn't realize is that they were teaching Thomas to prioritize baseball above the fourth commandment. They were teaching Thomas that he should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy unless it's baseball season. Thus, when Thomas got to college and had to choose between going to church and hanging out with his teammates, the foundations for his decision had already been laid. When he had to choose between extra time in chemistry lab and extra time in the batting cage, he knew intuitively which choice to make. And when he had a choice between sitting on the bench for the first time in his life or taking a shortcut to a bigger body and a faster bat, he struggled for a while but eventually made his decision based on the one thing that had directed his path since he was six years old. In other words, Thomas's lack of commitment to spiritual matters laid the groundwork for his moral compromise. Christianity was never the center of Thomas's universe. It was always something on the periphery. Church, and more importantly Jesus Christ, always orbited around baseball, the bright shining star at the center of his universe. Does this mean that every young ball player will experience moral compromise? Certainly not, nor am I arguing that we should abolish all sports. I'm simply arguing that anything that causes us to compromise our beliefs can and probably will become an idol. Some people will only worship that idol half-heartedly, but some will sacrifice all on its altar. Thomas's father had never missed one of his son's games. Moreover, it was his father who had taught him how to throw a curveball, how to put his body in front of a grounder, how to turn a double play. In fact, Thomas's father was the coach of his first t-ball team. However, when I asked whether or not he had led his son and his family in family worship, his only response was, I never even thought about it. In other words, this man had spent countless hours and immeasurable amounts of energy teaching his son how to be A ball player, but hadn't done a thing to teach him how to be a Christian. When I pressed him, he said, I thought the youth pastor was doing a good job with that. The point here is so obvious that I hesitate to state it. When it came to baseball, he had coaches and leagues, but he was the one providing private instruction in the backyard. However, when it came to spiritual matters, he passed the buck. When it came game time, he was not willing to miss and wore that fact as a badge of honor. But when it came time for church, he thought nothing of being absent for weeks or at one point months at a time. This family was worshiping a rival and their son's life was the fruit of their idolatry. Unfortunately, their son's walk with the Lord was, oh wait a second, there were certain things for which they were willing to sacrifice all. Unfortunately, their son's walk with the Lord was not one of those things. Is there any wonder that a young man in the, his situation would miss church? Is there any doubt that a young man in Thomas's situation would be hard pressed to find the courage to resist having a few drinks with the guys on the squad? Sadly, this story is very familiar to those of us who've been around the church for a while. In fact, many of us see ourselves as we read between the lines. We live in an age where many gods vie for our allegiance. What's worse, these gods try to convince us that if we bow, They will give our children what the God of the Bible cannot give us, success by worldly standards. So what is Baucom saying? He's not saying that that having your kids in church every Sunday is some sort of guarantee that they'll turn out right. But one of the things that he is saying is that our family rhythms, our, our family patterns reflect what our real priorities are, what is really important to our family. And that kids pick this up. More than what we say to them, it's what we do. It's what we prioritize that tells them what's really important to our family. And that's why the story of Exodus pauses right at the most exciting moment to give us a recipe for the turkey, so to speak. Because God knows that what God was about to do in rescuing his people from Egypt would need to be celebrated and remembered again and again in the family life of his people. Imagine you're a a grandchild of that first generation who had been slaves in Egypt and had experienced firsthand God bringing his people out. Your grandparents are dead now. They died in the desert wandering around with Moses for those 40 years. And, and so you've heard the stories of the exodus from your parents who heard it from their parents. But, but what's going to keep those stories now as the grandchild from, from being just nice old-fashioned tales from the old days, right? Because our grandparents were young a bazillion years ago, right? What's going to make the Exodus a defining moment, not just for your grandparents or, or, or even for your parents, but for you, even though it happened so long ago? What's going to make this story of God and Pharaoh a part of your identity, that, that you are a part of the people God redeemed? That God heard your cries, that, that God saw your suffering, and God remembered his covenant with your forefathers. And so God came down with great power and, and defeated the greatest empire in the world and all of its gods to set you free so that you could be God's people, so that God could bless you for all, with all that God had promised. What is going to help you take this story on as your story and take on your identity as one of God's saved and rescued people? Well, God provides the answer right here in our passage today. God tells Moses and the Israelites exactly what to do. For starters, the Exodus event is so big and so central to the people of God that God reorganizes the calendar around it. God. Um, God's saving of his people from Egypt becomes a new beginning, a, a start of the new year. Then, every year, the whole family is to gather to celebrate God's salvation. And a whole week is given to the celebration, if you keep reading in chapter 12. Work stops because it's holiday time. It's special time. Now, back then, a household would have included aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents, and, and so this was an extended family holiday, much like, um, well, much like some of us who have extended families are able to get together for holidays today. And, and so to kick off this, this holiday, a whole lamb would be roasted, um, like we often will roast a large turkey today if the whole family is able to be together in one place. And anyone with a very small household is to be included with their neighbors to share the lamb with them. Everyone is to be included in a big family for this celebration. The lamb is to be roasted because that was the quickest way to cook it. This reminds everyone that they had to leave Egypt in a hurry. So does the unleavened bread because there was no time to let bread rise before they left. And so the family would gather together each Passover. They would eat the roasted lamb and the unleavened bread with their staffs in their hands, with their cloaks tucked in their belt, as if they're ready to move out at a moment's notice. In other words, they're not only remembering the first Passover, but they're actually play-acting it. They're reenacting it as if it was happening to them. And you can imagine how this would bring it to life, especially for the children, right? They love to make-believe, to to play-act. It, brings, it makes it real. This Passover holiday is telling them who they are. It's, it's forming their identity. It isn't just an old story from the past. No, it's their story. Their God is, is greater than the gods of Egypt. Their God has set them free with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Their God is powerful. Their God can get them out of any jam, can rescue them from any bondage, can protect them from any enemy. And their God loves them. After all, when the destroying angel stalked through the streets and neighborhoods of Egypt on the night of the Exodus, why was it that all the firstborns of the Egyptians were put to death, but the firstborns of the Israelites were spared? What made the difference? It was that God loves his people. God cares for them. God didn't want to destroy them, so God provided a way for them to be spared. A lamb would be sacrificed in their place as a substitute. The lamb gave its blood so that they didn't have to lose their blood. The blood was put on the doorposts and, and the lintel of their houses as a, as a mark, as a sign that they were God's special people, that God's favor was on them, that God loved them enough to provide for a way, a way for them to live, that God chose to accept the sacrifice of another so that they could be his. And so God rescued them. God set them free to be his people. Now, for the first generation who experienced all of that, none of that was theory, of course. None of it was just nice religious stories. No, it was all very real and, and very personal. It was life transforming. But what about the next generation? What about the children, the grandchildren? How did they come to relate to, to the real God, the God who saves? Well, they'll, they'll need experiences with God of their own. But also, they'll need to be raised in families that have patterns and rhythms that keep the reality alive. That communicate that these things are central priorities for this family that these things mark and identify and and give meaning and identity to who that family is and what that family is about. So, how do we do this today? Well, obviously, today, as followers of Christ, we look to, to Jesus Christ as the one who brought the full blessings of the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the sacrifice whose blood was shed and smeared over us so that death passed over us so that we could live to be God's people. Jesus is also the one through whom God's great power of deliverance was displayed, giving us victory over our enemies, setting us free from everything that holds us in bondage. And of course, Jesus updated and upgraded the Passover meal for his followers to include bread, his own body broken for us, And a cup, his blood, spilled for us so that we can remember and reenact that salvation and our part in it. And so for some of us here this morning, the way we respond to this message might be to say, I want to be a part of God's people. I want to be set free. I'm battling forces which are keeping me in captivity, and I want Jesus' power to set me free. Or uh, I'm struggling with shame. I'm, I'm struggling with, with the guilty conscience. I need Jesus, the Passover lamb, to die on my behalf so that God's punishment can pass over me and I can be safe and embraced as one of God's people. And, and if that's where you are this morning, then, then Jesus has given us a way to enact that, to, to step in to the salvation that Jesus offers. And it's called Baptism. The water washes away all of our shame, all of our guilt, making us clean, forgiven in God's sight. And as we go down into the water, it's like dying a death, and we leave behind all that bound us, all of our enemies, all that held us in bondage. And as we come up out of the water, we come up into a new life, set free to live a new life as part of the free people. So that's one way we might want to respond For others of us, we may need to respond another way as we think about the next generations. Maybe we don't have children of our own, or maybe our children are grown, and we raised them the best we knew how, and we got some things right, and of course we made some mistakes along the way. And now our role is to pray for them. And it's also to start over with our grandchildren, or maybe... Uh, to be spiritual aunts and uncles and grandparents to other people's children. For still others of us who do have children at home, who are still working out how to pass on our faith to them, let me encourage um, us in three ways. First, don't delegate your children's faith to the church. Don't delegate it to the church. Don't leave your kid's faith in the hands of a Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor. Now, these folks are important, and we have some great ones around at CBC who have an important role to play. But they can't compete with you as parents, with your role, with your influence. Your kids need you. They need to see what you value. They need to see what your faith means to you. And if you don't know, then figure it out. Um. The best thing you can do for your kids is to work on strengthening your own faith. And then let let them see. Let them see your struggles. Let them see your attempts, your ups and downs. Let them see that it's real. You take take personal responsibility for your kids' faith. That's the first thing. Second, don't do it alone. Remember, it was extended families who celebrated the Passover. Nuclear family is, is great, but it's not enough we need uh, our kids need grandparents they need uncles they need aunts they need cousins maybe flesh and blood relatives if they're available but but otherwise spiritual relatives who can come around them and love them and support and reinforce the faith that you're trying to pass on make it a priority to build an extended spiritual family around your children and then third Find rhythms and patterns which show that your faith is a priority. That God is real and powerful. That God matters. And that your whole identity as a family is is based on what God has done for you in saving you and setting you free to be his own. Now, there are a lot of ways that that we can do this, and that's conversation's probably had in a smaller group, and so we'll talk about that in the discussion group at 11.15 if you want to talk practically about some ways to think about rhythms and patterns. Uh, but as we close, just a reminder, if anyone would like prayer this morning, Terence and some others will be available in the lounge. I know there's always a transition of people coming in and out of the lounge, but if you actually go into the lounge, you will find um, some folks with the little uh, blue ribbons on and they'd be happy to pray with you either there or to find somewhere quiet to pray. Let's pray. God, thank you for the long, long heritage we have as your family, as your people. Thank you that when we, our family, our ancestors, your people were in bondage in Egypt, you heard our cries, you saw our suffering, you came down with mighty power and great love to rescue us to bring us out of bondage and captivity to set us free. Thank you that you did that all over again so many years later through Jesus Christ and you opened up the invitation to be part of your family not just to the blood relatives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but to anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ who would paint his blood over their life and trust him forgiveness, for freedom, and who is now seeking to walk in that forgiveness and freedom to extend it to others and to follow Jesus as their great deliverer. I pray for each of us that we would find ways better to walk in that and also to share it with the next generations. In Jesus' name.